This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The First Battle of Bull Run by P. G. T. Beauregard Soon after the first conflict between the authorities of the Federal Union and those of the Confederate States had occurred in Charleston Harbor by the bombardment of Fort Sumter, which, beginning at 4.30 a.m. on the 12th of April, 1861, forced the surrender of that fortress within thirty hours thereafter into my hands. I was called to Richmond, which by that time had become the Confederate seat of government, and was directed to, quote, assume command of the Confederate troops on the Alexandria line." End quote. Arriving at Manassas Junction, I took command on the 2nd of June, forty-nine days after the evacuation of Fort Sumter. Although the position at the time was strategically of commanding importance to the Confederates, the mere terrain was not only without natural defensive advantages, but, on the contrary, was absolutely unfavorable. Its strategic value was that, being close to the Federal capital, it held in observation the chief army then being assembled near Arlington by General McDowell, under the immediate eye of the Commander-in-Chief, General Scott, for an offensive movement against Richmond. And while it had a railway approach in its rear for the easy accumulation of reinforcements and all the necessary munitions of war from the southward, at the same time another, the Manassas Gap Railway, diverging laterally to the left from that point, gave rapid communications with the fertile valley of the Shenandoah, then teeming with livestock and cereal subsistence, as well as with other resources essential to the Confederates. There was this further value in the position to the Confederate Army, that, during the period of accumulation, seasoning, and training, it might be fed from the fat fields, pastures, and garners of Loudon, Fauquier, and the lower Shenandoah Valley counties, which otherwise must have fallen into the hands of the enemy. But on the other hand, Bull Run, a petty stream, was of little or no defensive strength, for it abounded in fords, and although for the most part its banks were rocky and abrupt, the side from which it would be approached offensively, in most places commanded the opposite ground. At the time of my arrival at Manassas, a Confederate army under General Joseph E. Johnston was in occupation of the lower Shenandoah Valley, along the line of the Upper Potomac, chiefly at Harper's Ferry, which was regarded as the gateway of the valley, and of one of the possible approaches to Richmond, a position from which he was speedily forced to retire, however, by a flank movement of a Federal army, under the veteran General Patterson, thrown across the Potomac at or about Martinsburg. On my other or right flank, so to speak, a Confederate force of some 2,500 men under General Holmes occupied the position of Aquia Creek on the lower Potomac, upon the line of approach to Richmond from that direction through Fredericksburg. The other approach, that by way of the James River, was held by Confederate troops under Generals Huger and Magruder establishing small outposts at Leesburg to observe the crossings of the Potomac in that quarter, and at Fairfax Courthouse an observation of Arlington, with other detachments in advance of Manassas toward Alexandria on the south side of the railroad, 
from the very outset I was anxiously aware that the sole military advantage at the moment to the Confederates was that of holding the interior lines. On the Federal or hostile side were all material advantages, including superior numbers, largely drawn from the old militia organizations of the great cities of the North, decidedly better armed and equipped than the troops under me, and strengthened by a small but incomparable body of regular infantry, as well as a number of batteries of regular field artillery of the highest class, and a very large and thoroughly organized staff corps, besides a numerous body of professionally educated officers in command of volunteer regiments, all precious military elements at such a juncture. Editor's footnote. The professionally educated officers on the Confederate side at Bull Run included Generals Johnston, Beauregard, Stonewall Jackson, Longstreet, Kirby Smith, Ewell, Early, B., D. R. Jones, Holmes, Evans, Elsie, and Jordan, all in high positions, besides others not so prominent. End of footnote. Happily, through the foresight of Colonel Thomas Jordan, whom General Lee had placed as the adjutant-general of the forces there assembled before my arrival, arrangements were made which enabled me to receive regularly, from private persons at the Federal Capitol, most accurate information, of which politicians high in council, as well as War Department clerks, were the unconscious ducks. On the 4th of July, my pickets happened upon and captured a soldier of the regulars, who proved to be a clerk in the adjutant-general's office of General McDowell, entrusted with a special duty of compiling returns of his army, a work which he confessed, without reluctance, he had just executed, showing the forces under McDowell about the 1st of July. His statement of the strength and composition of that force tallied so closely with that which had been acquired through my Washington agencies already mentioned, as well as through the leading northern newspapers, regular files of which were also transmitted to my headquarters from the Federal Capitol, that I could not doubt them. In these several ways, therefore, I was almost as well advised of the strength of the hostile army in my front as its commander, who, I may mention, had been a classmate of mine at West Point. Under those circumstances I had become satisfied that a well-equipped, well-constituted Federal army, at least fifty thousand strong, of all arms, confronted me at or about Arlington, ready and on the very eve of an offensive operation against me, and to meet which I could muster barely eighteen thousand men, with twenty-nine field guns. Previously, indeed as early as the middle of June, it had become apparent to my mind that through only one course of action could there be a well-grounded hope of ability on the part of the Confederates to encounter successfully the offensive operations for which the Federal authorities were then vigorously preparing in my immediate front, with so consummate a strategist and military administrator as Lieutenant General Scott in general command at Washington aided by his accomplished heads of the large General Staff Corps of the United States Army. This course was to make the most enterprising, warlike use of the interior lines which we possessed, for the swift concentration at the critical instant of every available Confederate force upon the menaced position, at the risk, if need were, of sacrificing all minor places to the one clearly of major military value 
there to meet our adversary so offensively as to overwhelm him, under circumstances that must assure immediate ability to assume the general offensive even upon his territory, and thus conquer an early peace by a few well-delivered blows. My views of such import had been already earnestly communicated to the proper authorities, but about the middle of July, satisfied that McDowell was on the eve of taking the offensive against me, I dispatched Colonel James Chestnut, of South Carolina, a voluntary aide-de-camp on my staff, who had served on an intimate footing with Mr. Davis in the Senate of the United States, to urge in substance the necessity for the immediate concentration of the larger part of the forces of Johnson and Holmes at Manassas, so that the moment McDowell should be sufficiently far detached from Washington, I would be enabled to move rapidly round his more convenient flank upon his rear and his communications, and attack him in reverse, or get between his forces, then separated, thus cutting off his retreat upon Arlington in the event of his defeat, and ensuring as an immediate consequence the crushing of Patterson, the liberation of Maryland, and the capture of Washington. This plan was rejected by Mr. Davis and his military advisers, Adjutant General Cooper and General Lee, who characterized it as, quote, brilliant and comprehensive, end quote, but essentially impracticable. Furthermore, Colonel Chestnut came back impressed with the views entertained at Richmond, as he communicated at once to my Adjutant General, that should the Federal Army soon move offensively upon my position, my best course would be to retire behind the Rappahannock, and accept battle there instead of at Manassas. In effect, it was regarded as best to sever communications between the two chief Confederate armies, that of the Potomac and that of the Shenandoah, with the inevitable immediate result that Johnston would be forced to leave Patterson in possession of the lower Shenandoah Valley, abandoning to the enemy so large a part of the most resourceful sections of Virginia and to retreat southward by way of the Luray Valley, pass across the Blue Ridge at Thornton's Gap, and unite with me after all, but at Fredericksburg, much nearer Richmond than Manassas. These views, however, were not made known to me at the time, and happily my mind was left free to the grave problem imposed upon me by the rejection of my plan for the immediate concentration of a materially larger force, i.e., the problem of placing and using my resources for a successful encounter behind Bull Run with the Federal Army, which I was not permitted to doubt, was about to take the field against me. It is almost needless to say that I had caused to be made a thorough reconnaissance of all the ground in my front and flanks, and had made myself personally acquainted with the most material points, including the region of Sudley's Church on my left, where a small detachment was posted in observation. Left now to my own resources, of course the contingency of defeat had to be considered and provided for. Among the measures of precaution for such a result, I ordered the destruction of the railroad bridge across Bull Run at Union Mills, on my right, in order that the enemy, in the event of my defeat, should not have the immediate use of the railroad in following up their movement against Richmond a railroad which then could have no corresponding value to us eastward beyond Manassas in any operations on our side with Washington as the objective. 
inasmuch as any such operations must have been made by the way of the upper Potomac and upon the rear of that city. Just before Colonel Chestnut was dispatched on the mission of which I have spoken, a former clerk in one of the departments at Washington, well known to him, had volunteered to return thither and bring back the latest information of the military and political situation from our most trusted friends. His loyalty to our cause, his intelligence, and his desire to be of service being vouched for, he was at once sent across the Potomac below Alexandria, merely accredited by a small scrap of paper bearing in Colonel Jordan's cipher the two words, Trust Bearer, with which he was to call at a certain house in Washington within easy rifle range of the White House, ask for the lady of the house, and present it only to her. This delicate mission was as fortunate as it was deftly executed. In the early morning, as the newsboys were crying in the empty streets of Washington, the intelligence that the order was given for the Federal Army to move at once upon my position, that scrap of paper reached the hands of the one person in all that city who could extract any meaning from it. With no more delay than was necessary for a hurried breakfast and the writing in cipher by Mrs. G. of the words, Order issued for McDowell to march upon Manassas to-night. My agent was placed in communication with another friend, who carried him in a buggy with a relay of horses as swiftly as possible down the eastern shore of the Potomac to our regular ferry across that river. Without untoward incident, the momentous dispatch was quickly delivered into the hands of a cavalry courier, and by means of relays it was in my hands between eight and nine o'clock that night. Within half an hour my outpost commanders, advised of what was impending, were directed, at the first evidence of the near presence of the enemy in their front, to fall back in the manner and to positions already prescribed in anticipation of such a contingency, in an order confidentially communicated to them four weeks before, and the detachment at Leesburg was directed to join me by forced marches. Having thus cleared my decks for action, I next acquainted Mr. Davis with the situation, and ventured once more to suggest that the army of the Shenandoah, with the brigade at Fredericksburg or Aquia Creek, should be ordered to reinforce me, suggestions that were at once heeded so far that General Holmes was ordered to carry his command to my aid, and General Johnston was given discretion to do likewise. After some telegraphic discussion with me, General Johnston was induced to exercise this discretion in favor of the swift march of the Army of the Shenandoah to my relief, and to facilitate that vital movement, I hastened to accumulate all possible means of railway transport as a designated point on the Manassas Gap Railroad at the eastern foot of the Blue Ridge, to which Johnston's troops directed their march. However, at the same time, I had submitted the alternative proposition to General Johnston that, having passed the Blue Ridge, he should assemble his forces, press forward by way of Aldi, northwest of Manassas, and fall upon McDowell's right rear, while I, prepared for the operation, at the first sound of the conflict, should strenuously assume the offensive in my front. The situation and circumstances specially favored the signal success of such an operation. The march to the point of attack 
could have been accomplished as soon as the forces were brought ultimately by rail to Manassas Junction. Our enemy, thus attacked so nearly simultaneously on his right flank, his rear, and his front, naturally would suppose that I had been able to turn his flank while attacking him in front, and therefore that I must have an overwhelming superiority of numbers, and his forces being new troops, most of them under fire for the first time, must have soon fallen into a disastrous panic. Moreover, such an operation must have resulted advantageously to the Confederates, in the event that McDowell should, as might have been anticipated, attempt to strike the Manassas Gap Railway to my left, and thus cut off railway communications between Johnston's forces and my own, instead of the mere effort to strike my left flank which he actually essayed. Editor's footnote. I am, however, inclined to believe he, the enemy, may attempt to turn my left flank by a movement in the direction of Vienna, Frying Pan Church, and possibly Gum Spring, and thus cut off Johnston's line of retreat and communication with this place, Manassas Junction, via the Manassas Gap Railroad, while threatening my own communications with Richmond and depots of supply by the Alexandria and Orange Railroad, and opening his communications with the Potomac through Leesburg and Edwards Ferry. This is an extract from a letter addressed by General Beauregard to Jefferson Davis, July 11, 1861. Returning to the text. It seemed, however, as though the deferred attempt at concentration was to go for naught, for on the morning of the 18th the Federal forces were massed around Centerville, but three miles from Mitchell's Ford, and soon were seen advancing upon the roads leading to that and Blackburn's Ford. My order of battle, issued in the night of the 17th, contemplated an offensive return, particularly from the strong brigades on the right and right center. The Federal artillery opened in front of both fords, and the infantry, while demonstrating in front of Mitchell's ford, endeavored to force a passage at Blackburn's. Their column of attack, Tyler's division, was opposed by Longstreet's forces, to the reinforcement of which Early's brigade, the reserve line at McLean's Ford was ordered up. The Federals, after several attempts to force a passage, met a final repulse and retreated. Editor's footnote. It is denied that a serious attempt to force a passage was made on the 18th. This engagement was called by the Confederates the Battle of Bull Run, the main fight on the 21st being known in the South as the Battle of Manassas. After their infantry attack had ceased, about one o'clock, the contest lapsed into an artillery duel, in which the Washington Artillery of New Orleans won credit against the renowned batteries of the United States Regular Army. A comical effect of this artillery fight was the destruction of the dinner of myself and staff by a Federal shell that fell into the fireplace of my headquarters at the McLean House. Our success in this first limited collision was of special prestige to my army of new troops, and, moreover, of decisive importance by so increasing General McDowell's caution as to give time for the arrival of some of General Johnston's forces. But while on the 19th I was awaiting a renewed and general attack by the Federal Army, I received a telegram from the Richmond military authorities 
urging me to withdraw my call on General Johnson on account of the supposed impracticability of the concentration, an abiding conviction which had been but momentarily shaken by the alarm caused by McDowell's march upon Richmond. Footnote. Telegram from Richmond, July 19, 1861, to General Beauregard at Manassas, Virginia. We have no intelligence from General Johnston. If the enemy in front of you has abandoned an immediate attack, and General Johnston has not moved, you had better withdraw your call upon him, so that he may be left to his full discretion. All the troops arriving at Lynchburg are ordered to join you. From this place we will send as fast as transportation permits. The enemy is advised at Washington of the projected movement of Generals Johnston and Holmes, and may vary his plans in conformity thereto. Signed, S. Cooper, Adjutant General. Returning to the text. As this was not an order in terms, but an urgency which, notwithstanding its superior source, left me technically free, and could define me as responsible for any misadvents, I preferred to keep both the situation and the responsibility, and continued every effort for the prompt arrival of the Shenandoah forces, being resolved, should they come before General McDowell again attacked, to take myself the offensive. General McDowell, fortunately for my plans, spent the 19th and 20th in reconnaissances. Footnote. Lack of rations, as well as the necessity for information, detained McDowell at Centerville during these two days. Returning to the text. And meanwhile, General Johnston brought 8,340 men from the Shenandoah Valley, with 20 guns, and General Holmes, 1,265 rank and file, with six pieces of artillery from Aquia Creek. As these forces arrived, most of them in the afternoon of the 20th, I placed them chiefly so as to strengthen my left center and left, the latter being weak from lack of available troops. The disposition of the entire force was now as follows. At Union Mills Ford, Ewell's Brigade, supported by Holmes's. At McLean's Ford, D.R. Jones's Brigade, supported by Early's. At Blackburn's Ford, Longstreet's Brigade. At Mitchell's Ford, Bonham's Brigade. Cox's Brigade held the line in front and rear of Bull Run from Bonham's left, covering Lewis's, Ball's, and Island Ford's. To the right of Evans's demi-brigade, which covered the stone bridge and a farm ford about a mile above, and formed part also of Cox's command. The Shenandoah forces were placed in reserve. B's and Bartow's brigades, between McLean's and Blackburn's fords, and Jackson's between Blackburn's and Mitchell's fords. This force mustered 29,188 rank and file, and 55 guns of which 21,923 infantry, cavalry, and artillery, with 29 guns, belonged to my immediate forces, i.e., the Army of the Potomac. The preparation, in front of an ever-threatening enemy, of a wholly volunteer army, composed of men very few of whom had ever belonged to any military organization, had been a work of many cares not incident to the command of a regular army. These were increased by the insufficiency of my staff organization and inefficient management of the quartermaster's department at Richmond, 
and the preposterous mismanagement of the commissary-general, who not only failed to furnish rations, but caused the removal of the army commissaries, who, under my orders, procured food from the country in front of us to keep the army from absolute want, supplies that were otherwise exposed to be gathered by the enemy. So specially severe had been the recent duties at headquarters, aggravated not a little by night alarms arising from the enemy's immediate presence, that, in the evening of the twentieth, I found my chief of staff sunken upon the papers that covered his table, asleep in sheer exhaustion from the overstraining and almost slumberless labor of the last days and nights. I covered his door with a guard to secure his rest against any interruption after which the army had the benefit of his usual active and provident services. There was much in this decisive conflict about to open, not involved in any after battle, which pervaded the two armies and the people behind them, and colored the responsibility of the respective commanders. The political hostilities of a generation were now face to face with weapons instead of words. Defeat to either side would be a deep mortification, but defeat to the South must turn its claim of independence into an empty vaunt, and the defeated commander on either side might expect, though not the personal fate awarded by the Carthaginians to an unfortunate commander, at least a moral fate quite similar. Though disappointed that the concentration I had sought had not been permitted at the moment, and for the purpose preferred by me, and notwithstanding the non-arrival of some five thousand troops of the Shenandoah forces, my strength was now so increased that I had good hope of successfully meeting my adversary. General Johnston was the ranking officer, and entitled, therefore, to assume command of the United Forces. But as the extensive field of operations was one which I had occupied since the beginning of June, and with which I was thoroughly familiar in all its extent and military bearings, while he was wholly unacquainted with it, and, moreover, as I had made my plans and dispositions for the maintenance of the position, General Johnston, in view of the gravity of the impending issue, preferred not to assume the responsibilities of the chief direction of the forces during the battle, but to assist me upon the field. Therefore, I explained my plans and purposes, to which he agreed. Footnote. See General Beauregard's postscript, and General Johnston's consideration of the same topic in the paper to follow, and his postscript. End of section.